It's, it's, it's 2 Corinthians 9. I've just got to read you this one because it's so funny. It's in the message. Uh, it's verses 6 and 7. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. Remember, a stingy planter gets a stingy crop. A lavish planter gets a lavish crop. I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your own mind what you'll give. That will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting. <laughs> oh dear, we laughed so much when I found that in the message. I, I, I guess that the message would actually say it in a way that it needed to be said, if you see what I mean. So quickly, debt. Uh, Bible's got a lot to say about debt. Anyone who has been in debt would testify it's like being under oppression. There is a spiritual dynamic to debt. The enemy has you in his camp and under his control and you are rendered powerless. The Bible doesn't see lending as wrong. In Exodus it talks about lending fellow believers money, but it does say without interest. And the literal translation of the word interest is the bite of the serpent. It's okay to lend, but don't take it, make a charge. Interest-free because they're your brothers. And sometimes a loan can be more helpful, actually, than an outright gift. Because a gift will get people out of trouble, but it won't cure the basic problem, is, which is that they can't manage their money for whatever reason. Uh, Joyce and I could tell you a couple of stories about loans, and one thing and another won't go there, but we've been there, seen that one, done that one, trying to do it properly. A loan encourages them to self-effort. In our society, normal life includes borrowing money, but it's not God's ideal situation. The Bible sees debt as misfortune, not blessing. It cripples. It isn't possible sometimes to stay out of debt. We get into debt for all sorts of reasons. And people genuinely have misfortune. Something happens and you can't plan for it. The boiler blows up and instantly you've got to find a lot of money. But oftentimes it's just bad management and guidance is needed on the whole issue of budgeting. And the Bible clearly sees debt as bondage. Proverbs 22.7, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. So if you're having problems managing money, seek help, get things sorted. There are Christians who are skilled in offering advice and counsel on such issues. Essentially, if you walk in the Spirit, you'll be warned about things, provided you take heed and listen. The Holy Spirit will speak to us and tell us what provision we need to make. He won't lead us into trouble. It's all about relationship at the end of the day. As I've said before, the intimate relationship with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Staying rich towards God. And we really do need to live for Him and not for ourselves. At this time, I think this is probably the singular most important lesson we need to learn. Living not to please ourselves and fulfill our desires, but to learn to be Father pleasers, doing that which pleases Him. It's the kingdom principle, sinking first and only the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added. doesn't mean you'll be without problems. It does mean that where there is a problem, there is provision. God has laid out the roadmap like that. And he's laid out places where you will have problems. But there's little flags sticking up, mark provision. So when you get into the problem, you stand there and have a look round for your provision because every problem comes with its provision. 
So what are you investing in? Haggai 1, 5 and 6, uh, which I read just a moment ago. Consider your ways. You sow much and bring in little. You eat but don't have enough. Drink but are not filled. Clothe but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put it in a bag with holes. Here's the favourite one. Malachi 3.10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. People who are up for tithing, that's the one they'll give you it. 2 Corinthians 9.6. Just read it. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. This is the New King James, not the message. But he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. As I said this afternoon, hopefully we're going to look at bitter root judgments and expectancy, and that's all about sowing and reaping, and God is agricultural. He sows a seed, he reaps a harvest. We sow a seed, we reap a harvest. So where are you sowing your seeds? The point being made here is that not one of tithing per se, but if you do not invest in God's kingdom, if you're not rich towards God, you're storing up for yourself financial trouble in the long run. There's a principle that God's put in the spiritual realm, as in the physical, what you sow, you will reap. Some Christians may be in financial difficulties because they haven't been giving to God, especially in years of plenty. And some because they haven't obeyed the laws of the land regarding taxation. Pay up joyfully, having done everything in good order. You don't have to pay more than the law requires. I uh, tried this story on someone that I was staying with in the summer. It went down like a rat sandwich. You know the story of the farmer and the man who asked him, if you had a thousand sheep, would you give five hundred to the Lord? I certainly would, said the farmer. If you had a thousand cows, would you give five hundred to the Lord? Certainly. If you had two pigs, would you give one to the Lord? Now, that's not fair. You know I've got two pigs. I spoke to someone who, not hard up, and I just told her this. I just told her this story, and her face was a picture, bless her heart. It absolutely hit. <laughs> I didn't mean to. Given it will be given to you, good measure, shaken together, running over into your lap. Here's the one. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That is scary. I mean, that goes right across the board. So if you judge, what are you going to get back? Judgment. You've got to have a little look at it, what you're sowing. If you sow criticism, you're going to reap criticism. And you don't only reap the seed that you sowed, you reap a great big harvest. So the whole thing means we need to look at what we're doing, how we're sowing everywhere. So how we handle money reveals our heart. There's no talk of tithing here. Just what you put in, you'll get out with interest. Simple law of agriculture. Sow a seed, reap a harvest. But you have to sow the seed. When I was first a Christian, God asked me to have an open hand. It was about like that. Because <laughs> I worried about money all the time. Being a single mum and, uh, you know, not a lot coming in. Too much money, not enough money. And as I consistently asked him to give me an open hand, I had to ask him to do it. So it became open. Uh, and it's such a relief. In fact, when I got some money given to me, I, the first thing I wanted to do was give it away because of the, the responsibility of having, I think it was 10 grand I got somehow, 
uh, was too much and I wanted to give it away. It's better to be without it, I found, because you, it, all it brings is responsibility with what to do with the jolly stuff. So he's a generous God and he wants his children to be like him in this as in every respect. It's just part of the character of Jesus that's being worked into us. Proverbs 11.25 says, The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. So how to keep out of debt? Resist buying on credit. You absolutely must not do this. One of the things God had me do early on was to cut up my Barclay card. Um, I used to pay it off at the end of each month, but he said, I don't want you using it like that. You use a direct debit card, if you've got it in there, you'll buy it. If you haven't got it in there, you won't. No debt. Borrowing isn't income, it's expenditure. To avoid debt, put God first in your life. Think ahead. Don't take on commitments you can't afford. Control your spending. Know what you're spending. And give. You cannot afford not to give. I don't have a five easy steps to get yourself out of debt. If you're in it, I'm afraid you will have to seek the Lord on that one. I really don't. Um, okay, I'm trying to cut some of this out because you'll see it when you read the notes. Let's go to the bit we want to know about, don't we? You'll read the notes on this. Um, the, the next bit was going to be were the uh, rich uh, believers in the early church and the, the answer is there were um, because Lydia in Acts 16.14 uh, Romans 16.23 there was Erastus and Philemon they both had slaves and you didn't have slaves if you weren't wealthy Joseph of Arimathea he was a wealthy man and Acts 4.34 you can see they brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles to help the poor. So the Bible constantly acknowledges the reality of the fact there will be poor among us. It's okay to be rich, but there will be poor too, and the rich should ensure that the poor are looked after. James tells us if we see a brother in need, don't say, go and be warm and well fed. You do something about it. If you can do it, you do it. If you are rich, be sure that you're rich in good works also. It isn't wrong to have money. Bless you if you're well fixed, that's wonderful. Just ensure that you steward it, not own it. The issue in the scripture is not heaven and hell. It's life and death. Do you have life working in you or do you have death working in you? The rich man in the eye of the needle, that's the rich young ruler. You remember where Jesus says it's easier for... Uh, camels are going through the eye of a needle many um, conjectures on what that meant my understanding of it is that there was a, around the wall of Jerusalem there were the main gates but there were other smaller gates and one of them all, all of them were locked at night time to stop marauders but there was one that was left open and it was called the, camel, the, the eye of the needle and it was very small and it only took one man to look after that so when you arrived at the needle's eye with your camel loaded up with stuff. You'd have to take everything off of your camel, get him on his knees, shove him through the hole, push all your stuff through afterwards, and then you crawl through. And once you've got on the other side, you're okay. Uh, sometimes God pushes you through that narrow gate. 
and everything just has to be taken off in order for you to get through the narrow gate. Uh, remember a friend of her, uh, she's gone to be with the Lord now, she had a picture of an escalator and she was loaded up with bags and stuff and backpacks and suitcases and all sorts. And she wanted to get on this escalator to go up, but she couldn't get on with everything she was carting, so she just stood there and looked at it. And of course, she asked us what we thought the interpretation was. Well, the answer is, all the stuff you're carrying, sweetheart, you're going to have to put it down if you want to go up. And that's always the way. If you want to go higher in God, there are always things that have got to be laid down. Uh, and it's then that you know whether you're stewarding it or owning it including your children and your family and your husband and that which is nearest to you, whatever it is, you know, does it have you or do you have it? If it has you, you're in bondage. It's got a grip on you. If you have it, then you can put it down. There's always the difference. So that's the story of the needle's eye. Everything comes up. Scripture jams you through this narrow gate so that you relate differently. It's the law of re-relating. You relate differently to the stuff when you get on the other side when he's taken it away from you. So he will deal with things like that. If you really want to go for gold with God, if you really say, Lord, all I want is you. Um, Reese Howell's son spoke of Reese Howell. Some of you know Reese Howell. He was an intercessor. And there's a book written by someone after, after his death. Um, he was, the Lord's servant was possessed by God, is what was said of him. So you get to decide how much of God you want. You get to choose. Because you can have as much of him as you want. I used to say, um, my goal is God himself by any road, dear Lord, at any cost. Since I've heard that the Lord's servant was possessed by God, that's what I'm after. I want to be totally his, so that totally what he wants to do through me is done. That I have no desire, will, anything. That is my goal. You've all got different goals. That's what I want. So I'm going for it. And going for it like that will make me um, contentious. Because I will say things and I will cause people, I will challenge and I will want people to be going for I want to see people going for it in God. Because it's the only thing worth going after. So Jesus says, if you'll pass through the stripping process, I'll show you what life is all about. Otherwise you don't have it, has you? So, okay, to tithe or not to tithe, is that the question? Now we're at the bit where we all want some definitive guidance. Is, is tithing an Old Testament principle or does it relate to the New Testament as well? Tithing teaching will usually go one of two ways. First one is, the 10% tithe is established in law, or even before, because of Abraham and Melchizedek. Remember, we met Melchizedek, and he gave him 10%. Second one is, tithing is not required by the church, but tithing, 10% should be looked upon as a minimum. 
for guidance because you get if you give. So those are the two major ways you'll hear it taught. It's the 10% law established in the Old Testament. But it's not required, but 10% is the minimum. So they're really saying it is, if you see what I mean. Now I have looked at this very carefully, and I have sought the Lord. And you'll notice that I've taught not from only the New Testament, but from the Old as well. But bear in mind what I said at the beginning, it's the issue of the heart. That's what God is looking at. So those are the two major ways you will hear it taught, and actually both are false. The first is erroneous because they too will say 10% is a minimum, but omit to mention that the tithes paid in cash were 12%, not 10%, and it's 12%, not 10% of your total income, not that after tax. And there was more than one tithe under the law. There were two annual and one paid every, th every third year. And the purpose of Old Testament tithing was God's form of taxation to look after the poor and the priesthood because they owned nothing. The second, give to get, introduces major elements of wrong thinking that the blessings of God can be bought with money rather than received through grace. So you give to get. Other elements of this kind of teaching, it brings in that 10% belongs to God and the rest is mine, so therefore I can do with it as I like. So yeah, Lord, there's your bit, the rest is mine, and the concept of stewardship is either completely lost or minimised. The 10% is good guidance for a minimum school is just tithing teaching made softer. <laughs> we don't have to tithe, but we should look upon 10% as a minimum. And beware of the, I started to tie them one, the pool syndrome, you know. Yeah, I gave this and then the next thing I knew was I got this huge return. It comes into the category of bribing God. If I do this, you are bound to do that. No, sir. Sorry. And one more scripture, Malachi 3, commonly used to twist your arm up your back, as I said, to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see if I will not open the windows of heaven that, you know, test me now. I will pour out such blessing. What the prophet was saying to Israel was, you are reaping a curse because you have failed to keep the law. Exactly what God told them would happen in Deuteronomy 28. And this passage has no relation whatsoever to the church. The law was a written code. It has been rendered inoperative by Jesus' death on the cross. So any promise of a result through tithing is a false promise. Everything now is judged by the attitude of our hearts, by the fact that we are stewards and not owners, so that once we understand the principle of stewardship, we say it's all yours anyway, where do you want to give? What you do with money is not an external observance. It's an affair of the heart. Like all New Testament teaching, God looks on the heart attitude towards everything. It's not about anything else but your heart. So the sum of the matter, Luke 6.38, shows us the way you give is the way you will receive. 2 Corinthians 8, 1-4, give liberally, 
2 Corinthians 8.12, give willingly. 2 Corinthians 9.5, as a matter of generosity, not grudging obligation, or as it says in the message, would you add up your back, or a sob story. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly, so bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. So you give as you purpose in your heart, because God loves a cheerful giver. So, God bless you, thank you for listening. Have a little break, come back about two, and if you want to, we'll have a look at uh, Bitter Root Judgments and Expectancy, another law of sowing the notes will be available at the next um, baton meeting, that bring you back or not. Or if you're on email, we'll email them to you if you want them. Thank you very much. 12.15 And uh, the New King James says, I'll go verse 14, Pursue peace with all men and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. The message says in the same thing, work at getting along with each other and with God, otherwise you'll never get so much of a as a glimpse of God. Make sure no one gets left out of God's generosity. Keep a sharp eye out for weeds of bitter discontent. A thistle or two gone to seed can ruin a whole garden in no time. Watch out for the Esau syndrome, trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. You know how Esau later regretted the impulsive act and wanted God's blessing, but by then it was too late. Tears or no tears. He's talking about inheritance there, that's another teaching altogether, but that was the message version of that and Matthew 7 verses 1 and 2 judge not that you be not judged for with what judgment or condemnation you judge you will be judged and with the same measure you use it will be measured back to you. We were talking about that this morning. And Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this also he will reap. So I'll be giving you time to work on anything that comes up this afternoon. Because something may. So I'll keep this time of chatter as short as possible. Because bitter root judgments are always about relational issues, usually in very early childhood, at times when vows are made as well. And the principle here is that we sow a seed of judgment and we reap a harvest. And usually at the time when we're sowing the seed, we're totally unaware of what we're doing because it is quite early on, as I say. Uh, in childhood. And Carol Arnott has a, a good piece um, about bitter root judgments in the back of the forgiveness book. If anybody wants one of those, I can arrange that for you. Um, she t tells about how God started to deal with her because people in the church were always coming to her and dumping on her. And her husband would not support her. He'd say, oh, it's you. You know, what's the matter with you? 
Anyway, when God began to deal with her, it actually was, it was a bitter root that she had sown in her childhood about how people would react and respond and what the primary person in her life would do when a same situation came. And so she, when she repented, the next time someone came to her and dumped on her and she told her husband, he said, I'll go and see him. Not even that. He completely turned around because God had straightened her out. So the principle again is that we sow a seed of judgment and we reap a harvest. And I want to give you a fictional example of how it works out. And it's not a real case scenario, please believe me, because these judgments can arise in any shape, manner or form. And this, is, this example is a parental one. So a uh, married couple, Fred and Mary, they come for counsel. Fred thinks the problem is Mary. She is just too fat and he can't stand it. Mary feels awful about herself because no matter how hard she tries, she can't get that weight off. Fred spends most of his time criticising her, either verbally or by his looks, and this makes it worse. The marriage is at an all-time low. There is little or no physical contact between them. They live just tolerating each other, probably staying together for the sake of the children. She is resentful of him, and he no longer finds her attractive. So what's happened to love's young dream? A few questions about their childhood reveals that Fred had grown up with a mother who not only became obese, but she was slovenly. She failed to care for her appearance, the house was poorly kept, and she would use the toilet with the door open and all the children running in and out. Without realising it, extreme example, without realising it, as a child, Fred had judged his mother for her appearance and habits. He may have thought, all women are like that. That's what they are like. They are fat and they have nasty habits. You see how it works? He makes an observation, which is actually a judgement. He may have even made an inner vow. If I ever get married, I'm not living with a woman like that. And that's where the seed was sown, which later reaps the harvest. Mary. Now Mary had grown up with a father she could never please. She tried so hard, but he always found something to criticise her about. At least that was her perception. And therefore, her expectation was that men would always be critical of her, and she could never please them. So you see the way it's shaping up. The expectation, the bitter root has always got an expectation alongside it. He sees mum and he's subconsciously thinking that's how they're going to be. Uh, she sees dad and subconsciously thinks any man is going to criticise me. You know, it doesn't matter how hard I try. So you know what's coming. She judged her father and her expectancy was that the man in her life would always be critical of her that she would never be acceptable or be able to please him. So you see where I'm going. When the couple met, Mary was slim and beautiful. They met in love, fell in love and married. In a little while, Mary became pregnant. As she grew in size, Fred found it difficult to love and admire her as he had. She felt insecure, aware of his critical looks, and ate more to comfort herself. This resulted in more and more weight going on. As he became angrier, she became more and more nervous, 
and more hungry, and you guessed it, fatter. All of this affected her ability to keep herself and the house clean and tidy. She went into a downward spiral of depression. He withdrew himself even more. They were powerless to stop the slide. Ultimately, the law of judgment does have that kind of power and effect. When Fred judged his mother, he was setting a law in motion which wouldn't be repealed until he understood what he'd done and renounced the judgment. Every time we do a deed or hold a judgment, it can be compared to sowing a small seed from which we will reap a harvest. We don't just reap the seed, do we, when we sow? We reap a harvest, there is an increase. The longer a judgment continues, unrepented of and unconfessed, the greater the increment it gains. We sow a spark and reap a forest fire, it becomes uncontrollable. For Fred and Mary, the issue was their parents and their lack of honour towards mum and dad. Done in ignorance, yes, but it didn't stop the law of sowing and reaping any more than dropping anything on the floor will stop the law of gravity from working. It's a law as much as the law of gravity is. If I can tell you something from my own experience, I had a lifelong battle with weight. Um, when I was much, much younger, I, I just spent my whole time dieting to keep down to a, a, a size that I thought was acceptable. Uh, and to do this in the early days, I, I took what would now be called uppers. They were um, amphetamines, which suppressed your appetite uh, and therefore stopped you wanting to eat. So that was brilliant. You lost weight because you didn't eat, but you was permanently on high, really. And you could get them over the counter. I'm talking about many years ago now. Um, and so when I became a Christian, or before that perhaps, I had said to myself, when I get to 50, I've got to eat what I like. Well, so I become a Christian and the weight starts to go on. Well, not only had I stopped dieting because I stopped dieting and that was that, but I could not seem to control this Tremendous gain in my weight. I mean, I would joke, you know, and you have to look at something. And So the first thing the Lord took me to task on was my vow that I'd made. When I get to 50, I'm going to eat what I like. So we cancelled that out and for a little while all went nicely. And then suddenly, it, Joyce said to me, you're eating less and less and you're gaining more and more. So I, one weekend went to prayer about this when Joyce and somebody else was there. I forget who it was. And the first thing the Lord brought to mind were the amphetamine tablets that I'd taken. And at that point, I had seen food as an enemy. So anything that I ingested, I saw it as take, putting on weight. So my body had thought, better hold on to anything, you know. If I don't hold on to it, I'm going to starve. That ran in concert with something else that he showed me which was that when I was very, very tiny, like only a few weeks old, my mother had said that I was always hungry. And she had a difficulty in breastfeeding me, so I was not getting as much as I needed. The midwife or whoever came round and said, this child's undernourished. And in those days, it used to be four hourly feeds, you know, whether the kids were hungry or not. You only fed them once every four hours. So um, 
the Lord said to me that I had made a decision, I had made a judgment that's a few weeks old, that anything that I took in I better hold on to because there might not be more where that came from. So add that to the fact that food was an enemy. Everything that my body was taking in, my body was saying, got to hold it, got to hold it. There may not be more where that comes from. Got to hold it, got to hold it. And I'm... <laughs> so when the Lord revealed this to me, I told the guys that were there and they prayed for me. And I renounced the vows that I'd made, even the one that I'd made as a very tiny child. Um, but I've got to hang on to everything. Um, and something came off every cell in my body. It was the most weird sensation. And I said to my body, it's okay. There is plenty more where that came from. You know, you can have it. Don't worry about it. With the result that I've probably held the same weight now for some years. Because I don't now worry too much. I don't eat the things that I know that will cause me problems, but it's not an issue for me anymore. Um, added to which the Lord has said he likes me the way I am, whether I like it or don't. So therefore I better settle it and stay like this. Because he said, they don't want to be cuddling a bag of bones, he said. <laughs> or worse than the effect. If you're going to be a mother, you've got to feel like one, you know. So I just give you that, just as an example of how these things actually work out in your life. Uh, Derek Prince talked about um, blessing and cursing and it comes into the same category when his wife was having terrible trouble with her legs. They hadn't long been married and sitting on the beach and she was having trouble with her legs and he suddenly started to pat her legs and say good legs, lovely legs, you know. And she said, why are you saying that? I've always hated my legs. So if there's any part of your body that you are hating, wishing you've got somebody else's, I would advise you this afternoon to repent because you're actually cursing that part of your body. And there is, there is a, it's a sowing and a reaping and you get the result in your body. Um, you might say um, that a child, maybe I'll give a, a, a fictional example, can't get a word in edgeways by the parents, from the parents, because they're always talking. And she can't be heard, so she thinks, they don't hear me, I'm not going to hear them. I'm not going to hear what they say. And later in life, she develops deaf deafness. Why do you think that is? Do you think there's a spiritual reason for that? Do you think if she said, Father, I'm sorry I dishonoured my parents, and I want to break that vow that I'm not going to listen. Then the spirit of infirmity or deafness or whatever has come off. I just command that off on the hearing, come back again. I think we walk around with lots of physical things that actually we didn't have because of various vows. There's one young lady always having trouble um, at menstruation time with pain, terrible pain in her tummy. And... Uh, I prayed for it, didn't get any better, and oh, I said, is the Lord saying anything to you? And it was to do with the fact that she didn't actually ever want to be pregnant. So, she, because she didn't like what it looked like when you were pregnant. So, uh, I sort of gently said, I think you'd best, in the kitchen door this was, I remember this took place, you'd best say, uh, change your mind about that pet, you know, because if you get married, and you know, so she did. And as far as I'm aware, she's not had the same problem since. She was 
cursing her reproductive organs. The enemy's happy with that, isn't he? So, honour and respect. The first commandment with promise, so I've made reference to it this morning, is Deuteronomy 5, 16. And it's honour your father and mother that it may go well with you. It's also repeated in the New Testament, so I'm not uh, doing something that isn't there. You don't honour them for what they do. Their behaviour may have been reprehensible, but for who they are. They've been made in the image of God, albeit that image has been marred beyond all recognition that the commandment still stands because you will miss a blessing if you hold unforgiveness or resentment or bitterness against them. All of us fail at parenting and that isn't the issue. The issue is the word of the Lord stands forever. And even if we've dishonoured our parents, we will reap that dishonour accordingly. We ourselves will suffer dishonour from others in the same way if we don't forgive. When God says, you know, if you don't forgive, your Heavenly Father cannot forgive us. Sometimes I think we walk around in unforgiveness thinking it doesn't apply to me because I've got such a reason to be in unforgiveness. It cannot apply to me. But it says he can't forgive us if we don't forgive because he's the one that does the judging at the end of the day. We just have to forgive and release, walk in freedom and let him be the judge of what is owed to anyone. And these are not issues of feelings, beloved, but the word of God. Leave him to judge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, forgive, repent, make restitution if you have to. Whatever you need to do. And it's for your good. It's for your own good. So a little definition of honour and respect at this point would probably be good. Honour or respect is the recognition of a person's worth or value and the attitude that is appropriate to that recognition. Honour recognises people as being valuable or worthy. Men and women made in God's image have an intrinsic, a core value that is eternal. Whether they're born again or not, they have this value because God has given it to them. Saved or unsaved, sinners or saints, God has imputed honour to them because of who he is, not because of who they are. He loves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. And it's not earned or achieved by good or bad behaviour. So the most devastated, broken, handicapped life is never a nothing. The vilest sinner is of eternal value to God. They're made in his image and he's paid the price for them. Their life remains eternally valued because God has given it that value. So when we speak of honour, we speak of what God speaks. And to go against that is to put ourselves out with him in the same way as we put ourselves out with him when we refuse to forgive. And in the same way that unforgiveness only affects us adversely, so do bitter root judgments. We are the ones who will suffer and those around us are the ones who are fulfilling our expectations. They will come, become like we expect. Dealt with a, one, a young lady once who's bemoaning the fact that she couldn't 
pretty girl find a spouse? Why men never seem to be able to? Um, she couldn't keep in a relationship. They would just not be able to get close. So we started to examine why this was that they couldn't get close. And she suddenly got a picture of herself sitting on, a, on an ice mountain. And she's looking down from the top of this mountain. And she was saying, they have got to climb up that to get to me. So she put all these provisos in place, that all these tests that they had got to pass. She had put them there. And she realised that what she had put was absolutely impossible. I said, I've got another picture. It's like Stadoglyph 5 or whatever you call it. You know, the prison camp. There's this um, building structure in the centre with the light going round and round and round. And she's standing in the centre looking at where this light's splashing round. Then there's the compound. Then there's the wire fence. Then there's all the barbed wire on the top. And if they could get in there under the scrutiny of all this, they just couldn't get near. And in actual fact, it was her own uh, judgments and inner vows that were keeping people away. So she would say, I can never get close to people. People never get close to me. But it was because of the vows, the self-protective mechanisms to keep people at a distance. And that was what was in operation. And she's desperate for someone to come inside the wire. I said, well, I'll get a pair of wire clippers, dear, and I'll get me way in there and <laughs> shin up your little pole and get you out from there. Once we see what we're doing, we can say, oh, silly thing. I'm going to stop that. So honour and respect. The existence of this intrinsic value means we must always make a clear distinction in our mind between who the person is and what they do. It's like when we were teaching on homosexuality. God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Not throwing away the baby with the bathwater and not turning a blind eye to what they're doing. But not coming down on them like a ton of bricks. But they must know uh, what is actually transgression, iniquity and sin in God's eyes. He hasn't changed. The words still exist. And the person is always totally acceptable because of their intrinsic or core value. So back to our fictitious Fred and Mary. Since Fred had judged his mother for obesity, he was due to reap obesity, and who more likely than his missus? His judgment first helped to draw him towards a woman who was likely to have a weight problem. Then it pushed Mary to gain weight. His necessity to reap what he'd sown was returning to him as a mighty harvest. For Mary, it was like a hundred mile an hour wind pushing her to fulfil his expectation. But of course, she had her own set of judgments from which she was also reaping. A bit like a boomerang, you know, you throw it and it comes back and it should be on the back of the neck. So, to sum up, life will go well for us in every area in which we honoured parents, and life will not go well in every area which we could not or do not honour them. We will receive harm in the same areas of life in which we have meted out judgment against others, and we will most surely reap what we've sown. 
So if you feel that you are continually being hit on the blind side and smashed by events and wonder why life seems so unfair and why everyone seems to reject you, that you are always being criticised or misunderstood, even why it is that you, just what you expect anyway, maybe it's now time to just sit quietly before the Lord and ask him if you've made any of these bitter root judgments with expectancy or inner vows or determinations that are locking you now into behaviour from which you absolutely cannot get loose. Thank you. Bitter root judgments and expectancy.